Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. It's the 12th of March 2021. This podcast is another in our series, Interesting Times, and the title is Monarchy, Institution and Soap Opera. As you are no doubt aware, there's been quite a kerfuffle in the UK press, and in fact in the, the global press, uh, around the uh, current condition of the UK monarchy. Now, apart from the general background, I don't really want to go into the detail of the specifics of what's uh, given rise to this uh, current kerfuffle. Rather, I'm more interested to ask in why uh, do these events merit so much attention and what is the nature of that attention and uh, and branching out from those questions to just uh, uh, make some perhaps slightly polemical suggestions about the nature of, of monarchy what in fact it does what its function is in society and also to look into the uh, the nature of the soap opera that surrounds uh, all kinds of celebrity uh, and and particularly uh, the institution of, of monarchy. So there's actually going to be some kind of a consideration of the monarchy as an institution and some kind of consideration of monarchy as a soap opera. So here's just a little bit, a bit of detail just so we can orientate ourselves. And I'm sure you're aware of all this, but recently, uh, Oprah Winfrey interviewed uh, Prince Harry, who is a grandson of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and the uh, Queen of, uh, or the Head of State of various other nations, such as Canada and Australia, and various states uh, which once belonged to the British Empire and this uh, Prince Harry's uh, wife uh, Meghan Markle who is an American actress uh, mixed race ash- actress I think she has I think her mother is black and Prince Harry and Meghan uh, moved recently to California and distance themselves from the the firm, in other words, the royal family, and public duties as a member of the royal family, as at what they call the senior royal. They cite press, harassment, too much focus as a, one, part of the reasons for making this move, and then they're trying to move into the American aristocracy, you might say, or to become celebrities uh, of the Californian variety rather than senior British royals. They also cite some kind of racism on the part of the royal family and some kind of lack of acceptance of Meghan Markle, uh, partly because she's American, partly because she's quite outspoken, partly because she's uh, mixed race. Uh, These are some of the reasons supplied. Now, there's been a huge stink in in the UK press, for and against... Uh, the career of one Piers Morgan seems to have fallen foul of, of this. As a, a Good Morning Britain guy, uh, in my honest opinion, Your Honour, something of a, a controversialist and a man with some 
fairly, I don't know, retrograde reactionary opinions about this, that and the other and a, a visceral loathing of anything vaguely hippie-ish or liberal small L. And he feels that the monarchy has been slandered by this uh, American upstart. Anyway, uh, there were so many complaints about him and he, he got kind of a taste of his own medicine on on his own show and he actually walked off the set. So, I mean, the, the guy will land, no doubt, in one of the new um, right-wing uh, all-day TV programmes, you know, GB TV and UK News, whatever they're called, these two kind of right-wing attempts to counter the uh, slow demise of the print media and the rise of, very slow rise, but nevertheless the rise of alternative leftists and radical media. But as I said, what interests me is the kerfuffle and the shenanigans and the uh, clamour that's arisen out of this situation. And even some of the new left-wing media seem to have, have fallen into the obsession with this entire matter, including Navarra media have given over some hours to it. The radio news programmes, BBC radio news programmes, like the Today programme, which comes on every morning from a, from very early in the morning till 9 o'clock, I know, is it 6 o'clock till 9 o'clock or maybe? Yeah, I think it's about that. But it's, yeah, a long programme is uh, just de devoted enormous airtime to this whole matter and trying to get into the nuances of the the clamour. And, of course, all this plugs into the fact that uh, Prince Harry is the, the son of uh, Prince Charles and his uh, first and late wife, uh, the famous Prince, Princess Diana, who was uh, uh, killed in a crash, which some people think was caused by the fact that she was in a car that was trying to outrun the press in Paris in one of the... Uh, the tunnels of Paris and, and ended up in a crash in which she was killed. And Harry was quite a young boy at the time and obviously severely traumatised by an event as anybody would be. So there's a whole kind of soap opera around that and a cult, a cult of Diana. And uh, it's all got, you know, it's a wonderful uh, soap opera plot. The whole thing, you, you, if you'd written it for EastEnders or something like that, you'd be feel quite pleased with yourself because it's all horribly real life and uh, rendered uh, complicated by the fact that these, these people are, are, are incredibly privileged and very, very rich. And actually quite remote in their life circumstances from the great mass of people uh, in, in the UK, in fact, in, in the world. So that's the background. And the rights and wrongs, the ins and outs, are the royals uh, racist or not? Is she an upstart who's trying to trash the great institution of the royal family? What is the argument about how we should regard uh, the royal family? Is it, should they be venerated and deferred to, or should they be regarded as parasites? These questions are very polarising. But I want to ask, what is the nature of this institution? 
And institutions, it strikes me, are pretty well any stripe. If they if they're reasonably venerable, are usually committed to the status quo. They're usually embedded in the status quo pretty thoroughly and pretty deeply and pretty solidly. And in order to for the for them to continue, and in order for them to have the significance, they need to also be rooting for business as usual. They also need to be rooting for not changing things radically. For instance, not nationalising uh, the natural monopolies, for not instituting workers' cooperatives, for not outlawing share trading, for not having a constitutional revision of the country by the people perhaps resulting in a republic. So institutions of their very nature are conservative in the true sense of the word, that they attempt to conserve, they attempt to resist change, except when it's absolutely unavoidable. And even then, when change does come, they will try and preserve as much as possible of certain old and venerable formations. I mean, institutions are organisations. But what do our venerable institutions do? As I said, they serve to preserve the status quo. So how, how does the monarchy do this? Given that it's a venerable institution. Uh, we've had a monarch in, in this country uh, ever since it was a country, apart from the, the brief period of the, the Commonwealth, in which Oliver Cromwell was the, protect, the Lord Protector, the monarchist side in the Civil War having lost. But this didn't last very long and the, mo the monarchy was re-established. And, okay, this is fairly polemical, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how anybody would argue against it. The monarchy as an institution exists to promote the principle of hierarchical hereditary privilege and to naturalise a stratified egalitarian society and to consolidate a culture of deference. So what does all this mean? Well, you become a monarch because you inherit it from family. So this actually says that the most important person in the country, the most valuable person, the person at the top of the pyramid or the hierarchy of our social structure is there in virtue of birth. So this, this says that, that there is something that can be inherited, some worth that can be inherited. I mean, this is such a preposterously irrational idea, even though it's, it's held a sway over human beings since we were human beings, it's nevertheless superstitious. There's no rational justification for it. And this is why we do occasionally get mad kings who are completely incapable of exercising any sort of governmental uh, role over society. It's an absurd and preposterous no notion. And that, that notion is the principle of hierarchical hereditary privilege. Totally absurd. Now, what does it mean 
to say that monarchy exists to naturalise a stratified inegalitarian society. Well, just the way in which people accept monarchy as being somehow this is the way things are. In other words, to say that it is natural that there are kings. It's to also say it's natural that society is stratified, that it has layers. And those layers are organised along a vertical axis. And the higher up you are on that axis, the, the, the higher the strata to which you belong, or the class to which you belong, the more valuable you are as a person, the more intrinsic worth you have. Again, uh, an irrational notion. Why should it be so? And this means that the whole institution of monarchy symbolises and states in subtle and not so subtle ways that inequality is natural and that it's fine for our society to be deeply inegalitarian. And we do know that it is. You just look at current events, particularly under the Conservative Party who make this a point of doctrine. You will. You don't have to look very deeply just to see how inegalitarian our society is. And I went on to say that monarchy consolidates a culture of deference. Well, what's deference? Deference is when it's forelock tugging, or, or touching your cap, or curtsying, or bowing, and bowing and scraping, you might say. And this is that you defer to your betters, who are better than you, by an accident of birth. And to my mind, why would anybody do that? Yeah. And apparently one of the things that uh, astonished uh, Ms. Markle, I don't know how true this is, but this is what's going the rounds in the soap opera, is that she thought, now that the Queen's my mother-in-law, why do I have to curtsy to her? But still it's expected that she curtsy to the Queen. You know, to in deference to the Queen. And a culture of deference, I would say, exists to contradict and countermand any call for an alteration in the power dynamics of the class structure. In, in the words of the Victorian hymn, the rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate. God made them high and low, each to his own estate. All things bright and beautiful. Famous hymn. It has that line in it. And notice there the appeal to God. God is the guarantor of the naturalness and the rightness of the caste system. And I say caste system advisedly. Caste isn't the preserve of India with its uh, reinforcement of class hierarchy in a particularly rigid way through the metaphysical notion of the Purusha Sukta or the, the cosmic man which attempts to guarantee the legitimacy of the caste system by claiming that it's inscribed in the very universe itself and in the very divinity itself. Uh, it, with respect to monarchy, 
until relatively recent times, there was a thing called the Divine Right of Kings, and this was probably, in the UK context, why we had to have a civil war to get rid of kings, and why that the, the actual political power of kings got attenuated in the, the late 17th century, as power shifted to Parliament, and the kings became more symbolic figureheads rather than actual rulers who made decisions and whose law was writ. But prior to this shift, kings were deemed to be ordained by God and their power to derive from God. And th this didn't just apply in the UK. You know, this is <laughs> that claim was made by the kings of France who, and the, the aristocrats of France who ended up having their heads chopped off in the revolution. So the culture of deference is there basically to keep the working class in their place, keep tugging your forelock. Keep shagging the flag. So th this institution is there psychologically and concretely to enforce, consolidate, propagandise for a class system and to make that class system appear, if not divine, at least natural. So right inscribed right at the heart of the state is a commitment to inequality as the right way to go about things. And the natural party of this notion is the uh, Tory party, even though the other parties seem unable to shake it off. So there's a brief rundown of the institution of, mo of monarchy. Now what about monarchy as soap opera? What have we got to say about that? And again, somewhat polemically, I want to say that the soap opera of monarchy serves to distract the public from pressing and urgent issues in which they might otherwise take direct action. There's so much airtime being given over to this latest kerfuffle, to this crisis in monarchy, that such urgent matters as environmental degradation, including climate change, with the upcoming summit in Glasgow, uh, soil depletion, ocean pollution with plastics and uh, crisis is therefore in fish stocks and just the ocean's role in the, the vast system of climate and the ecosphere in general, are all on the back burner. Even COVID is pushed to the back burner. The state of the economy, which was unstable prior to COVID and prior to Brexit, Brexit, all on the back burner. As we ponder the uh, the private lives of two rather privileged Californians, as they are now. So distraction is the role of these uh, royal soap, the royal soap opera, and of course America has got its own version of this with its own royalty. Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, maybe the Obama children. And, but mostly uh, the American aristocracy, uh, at least a good proportion of it, is the, it's either the very rich or the stars of, Holly, of Hollywood, people who are deemed to have a certain charisma, 
charm, beauty, wealth, etc., that can somehow fascinate the uh, the general public, and with the dramas of their lives, they can also um, be sort of quite beguiling. So, re really, the royalty of soap opera is a subspecies of celebrity culture. And its role is to distract, I would put it to you, and that it appeals to something very human, which is our interest in other people, and which is our interest in stories. And we like dramatic stories, stories that are like great tragedies, with intense triumph and intense tragedy. And it's natural for people to be interested in this stuff, but at the same time, the vicarious interest over and against the involvement with one's own life and the life the life of one's community can quite easily drift into pathology and distraction and escapism so it's, it can become a kind of bread and circuses exercise and you'll notice particularly that the gutter press like to build somebody up somebody who did well in big brother or in some sort of reality tv they build them up they see them make a lot of money out of advertising endorsements and so forth. They become famous for being famous. Then they knock them down. They find some scandal. Or they just simply knock them down, say that they're fat, they're getting fat. They put on too much weight, nonsense like that. And eventually they tear them down so that the public can enjoy the spectacle of a rise and fall. A gladiatorial spectacle with the, with the press put... The gut, with the gutter press and the celebrity press pulling the levers. Horrific stuff, really, it's, it's kind of shameful. Uh, and it plays into the lowest and the cruelest aspect of people's fascination with narratives and story, which in its own right is potentially a very uh, laudable and almost defining part of being human. So that's a pile of shit as well. Out of this kerfuffle with what it reveals about institutions, and particularly the institution of monarchy, and what it reveals about the soap opera of celebrity culture and its this the peculiar variant, the soap opera of royalty, I'm prompted to say that the UK needs a constitution, a new written constitution and we need to push aside these toxic notions of hierarchy hereditary privilege uh, naturalized stratified unequal society the culture of deference these need to be put aside they belong in the middle ages and not in the 21st century And all the talk about democracy, which is empty talk, needs to be realised. We need to call the bluff on democracy and have a truly democratic society. And that would mean an elected head of state, an elected second chamber, an abolition of the Privy Council, and workplace democracy. So elected executives and managers of companies elected by the workers who are also the shareholders of enterprises elected local mayors or local devolved governments 
and an extension of democracy into all, all areas of life. Then the talk about democracy, and only then, would cease to be bullcrap. This constitution should be put together by a representative body of citizens. And we should follow Chile, uh, a nation which reached, recently had a, a plebiscite or a referendum on whether to redo their uh, uh, military junta era constitution, reactionary constitution. The people of Chile overwhelmingly voted to, to read, have the constitution redone. And they were given a choice in the referendum whether to let the MPs or deputies, I think they call them, work up the the new constitution or whether a panel of citizens elected should be the body that draws up the new constitution. And they voted for a 100% citizen's body for putting together the new constitution. That's what we need to do. We need to elect some citizens' bodies and give them ample time and ample facilities because it shouldn't be rushed. We should come up with something very careful, very foolproof. We should find means of testing what we come out with. And then to try and move forward with that. Otherwise, I would say that the UK is going to remain stuck in a stagnant, economically stagnant and culturally stagnant state. And the emergencies with which we, as a, uh, both as a, a nation, but which uh, uh, emergencies that face the whole of humanity, will not be addressed in uh, our local situation. I hope that's useful. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, wash your hands. Make knowledge great again. Never stop questioning. And over and out.